In my two decades of teaching, I have only encountered one student that appears to have been a pathological liar. Which isn't merely someone that fibs habitually. I have had plenty of students that fall into that category. Pathological liars compulsively lie, oftentimes for no reason or personal gain. The student that I refer to regularly popped into my classroom in the morning to tell me some random piece of information, such as the idea that his dad was in the hit band that I happened to just be listening to at that moment, or that he had previously lived in the foreign country that coincidentally happened to be projected on my PowerPoint at that particular moment. The first two countries that he told me about were interesting and somewhat believable, but by the time he was telling me that he had lived in Australia for all of the prior year, despite the fact that I could see all of the grades that he had received from my colleagues, who definitely didn't commute each day from the land down under. Pathological liars fib out of habit, rather than purpose. They don't need to be missing their homework to tell you that their printer is broken, or that their dog now has indigestion because it partook in a homework feast. Disturbingly, today's equivalent of my dog ate my homework seems to be a student's mental health, which is an extremely dangerous excuse for students to manipulate. It may have taken a couple of years, but teachers finally figured out that 98% of all printers don't instantaneously combust each time they assign a long essay. Teachers can be one of the first to notice when a student's mental health is trending in the wrong direction. Overusing it and turning it into an excuse will eventually end with teachers rejecting the notion on face value. This is quite concerning for occasionally a dog does actually eat your homework. Our students are dealing with more pressure than they ever have before, which makes the habitual use of their mental health as a reason that they were unable to complete their work extremely dangerous to those who are actually suffering in the moment. Still, I can understand some of the other excuses that my students tell me. A small lie to a teacher about a late assignment may help you gain a few points back, which in turn may bump you up to the next grade category, which if we are snowballing headfirst into a slippery slope fallacy, will determine your entire future. Well then, who cares about a slight fudge of the truth? I get that. Pathological liars, however, can be extremely dangerous for the fact that their lies will always unravel upon themselves. The condition itself is often a sign of other mental health conditions, such as narcissistic or antisocial personality disorder. Both of these conditions result in manipulative and deceitful actions, irregardless of the damage that it causes to others. Although I've only had one student that was pathological, it has been revealed that 8 to 13% of the population fall into the category of lying at least 10 times per day, which places them in a category where they can be considered pathological. I suspect that William of Normandy falls into that range. You're listening to Empires, Anarchy, and Other Notable Moments a podcast designed for deep dives that assist in the teaching of history. This is the third of five episodes regarding the life of William the Conqueror. Episode 3, William the Would-Be Conqueror of England. In historian Stephen Baxter's view, Edward's handling of the succession issue was dangerously indecisive and contributed to one of the greatest catastrophes to which the English have ever succumbed. As we have thus far explored in our prior episodes, Edward the Confessor enjoyed gifting away the title of heir to his throne. He enjoyed it so much that he promised the kingship to at least three individuals. But the most problematic promise was the one that may or may not have been made to an up-and-coming Norman warrior. Although they resided along the beaches of northern France, the Normans were originally Vikings. 
Prior to settling down, the Scandinavian warriors regularly led assaults into the heart of France by traveling along the nation's river system. Unable to secure his own borders and frustrated at the amount of damage that the left-behind berserkers were causing, French King Charles the Simple ceded the land that is Normandy to a Viking chief named Rollo. It was a bold gambit fueled by desperation. The hope was that land would tame the nature of Rollo's people. By binding the invaders to the land, he hoped to co-op them into the feudal economy. It was far from a simple plan, but in the worst-case scenario, Charles had simply given up land that he couldn't hold. In the best case, he would be able to call upon Europe's fiercest warriors in times of need. The region of Normandy was first referred to as Northmania, the land of the Northmen. And just 82 years after Charles' gambit, the residents of Normandy had become French-speaking Christians in the year 1000. In less than 100 years, the Francs had successfully domesticated their enemy. But this didn't neutralize their ruthless nature. It just shifted who they ravaged. In addition to their participation in the 1066 invasion of England, the Normans raided large portions of Italy, fought against the Byzantines, and made up a significant portion of Western Europe's crusaders in the Holy Land. The Francs quickly realized that they had created a Frankenstein's monster as the newly minted Normans became renowned Christian warriors who prided themselves on an identity based upon their superiority to the Francs, whom they were supposed to be the vassals of. Historian Frank McLinn compares them to the Romanized Goths of the 5th century, explaining that they were caught between two worlds and accepted by neither. Fear of not fitting in coexisted and conflicted with fear of fitting in too well. William's father was Robert, the sixth Duke of Normandy, and his son's birth came as a bit of a surprise. In 1027, Duke Robert became suddenly smitten with a young lady named Herlev. As with many How You Met stories, the truth of what happened is a bit fuzzy. By some accounts, he fell deeply in love after watching her joyfully dance alone in the streets. Still another account has the Duke staring longingly at the young lady's backside while she was bent over doing laundry. Whichever way it happened, William, the star of 1066, was conceived after a medieval one-night stand. Although she wasn't from the aristocratic elite, her leve was an acceptable match for her baby's daddy. McLynn tries to justify why Robert wasn't willing to buy the so-called cow, writing that the marriage failed to occur because of the man's extreme cunning and ruthlessness, qualities which would be passed on in full measure to William. Civil war had fractured the Kingdom of Normandy the prior year, with William's dad squaring off against his older brother. The conflict ended with Robert poisoning his brother. The incident provided a life lesson for the Duke, with McLynn revealing that when a Duke of Normandy had more than one son, the upshot was always deadly rivalry, disputed thrones, murder, chaos, and civil war. The solution, at least in Robert's mind, was to ensure that he didn't have any family obligations, at least from a legal perspective. A lone bastard son whom he recognized as an heir could inherit the kingdom whole. Any other children born out of wedlock wouldn't need to be claimed by their father, at least not as long as William was meeting his father's expectations. Thus, the other bastard children of Robert were doomed to grow up in a life of obscurity. The old duke wasn't totally heartless, though, as he did arrange a solid marriage for her leve. William is believed to have been tall for the era, measuring out at about 5 foot 10 inches. Stories regarding his strength, stamina, and dogged determination 
lead us to believe that he was quite bulbarous, with a penchant for gallows humor, as he didn't display any fear of death. In fact, he seemed to court the Grim Reaper as his only mistress, as there exists loads of evidence of William playing with poison as a method of dealing with his enemies. His paranoia, talent as a warrior, as well as his internal doubts about his own worthiness as a bastard, and his penchant for lying as a leading politician, made him an impossible opponent to deal with. One of the key differences between the Normans and other Vikings was their deep devotion to Christianity. This is perhaps best illustrated by the fact that Robert only remained as duke for nine years, perishing while on a pilgrimage to the Holy Land. McLinn suggests that the reason for Robert's abandonment of this little portion of France was because he lacked the stomach for what amounted to decades of conquest that was necessary to bring his people to heel. His son William, however, had no such qualms, telling his biographers that he had been schooled in war since childhood. In 1035, William took over for his father as Duke of Normandy at the tender age of eight. He continued to display his father's pious ways, but like his grandfather, he wielded his faith as a weapon against his enemies. Monasteries were granted land taken from enemies, and in exchange for working to provide the state with horses, arms, and armor to the military, as well as dedicated monks uniquely trained to wield heavy maces. They were allies in his wars of subjugation, so much so that historian David Douglas referred to William's church leaders as crude and violent, perfect allies for a crude and violent age. His support for the church served as a key part of young William's political camouflage, as he worked overtime to present his rule as legitimate in the eyes of God. Dedication to the church allowed him to present himself as a fighter for Christian justice, as a wronged man, and as the bringer of peace, rather than as the conqueror. The monasteries were key to the Norman war machine, as they served as a front for the selective breeding of their war horses. Each Norman knight rode to battle with three dressed steers, one for baggage, one to ride to the battle, and a third to keep fresh for the actual combat. William's people also created the couched lance, which allowed them to concentrate the full weight and velocity of man and beast as they crashed into their opponents. Historian Anna Comnina claimed that a Norman charge was capable of shattering the walls of Jericho. William's grandfather, Richard II, was the first of the Normans to dream about one day ruling on the other side of the Channel. It was his daughter Emma who had married King Ethelred the Unready. She was, unfortunately, the woman who was then later forced into marrying Canute the Great, after the Viking king added England to his holdings. Ethelred's sons, including Edward the Confessor, fought in memory of their father. But after Edward's elder brother was killed in battle at age 14, the future king fled to his mother's childhood home in Normandy. He would spend the next 25 years of his life in exile upon French soil, growing up beside William. Being near the young man wasn't the easiest task, as nobles schemed to control the young duke. His advisor, Count Gilbert, was cut down by assassins, and another would-be ruler, Terhold, was killed in William's own bedchamber. The danger was real, as in that attack his steward's throat was cut while he was sleeping next to William. McLinn believes that it is clear that, as with Louis XIV and the Fronde 600 years later, a childhood memory of chaos helped to form William's authoritarian personality, and within that personality, a determination to exert absolute and unquestioned control in his dominion. 
In 1040, the Duke faced an armed rebellion by a man who claimed that William lacked the right to rule due to his questionable birth status. His rule managed to survive the challenge in large part because of the French king, Henry I, who worried that a war, which inevitably would pit all of France against Normandy, would disrupt trade within his realm. In exchange for the king's support, William lent his warriors to aid Henry in securing a particular castle that he envied. But the real reason for his benevolent intervention was to maintain Normandy as a shield against the growing power of Flanders. Despite the king's protection, the Norman outsiders remained more feared than beloved in their French homeland. Tensions rose again in 1046 with an attempted assassination of the 19-year-old William, who by this point was already a veteran in the 11th year of his rule. The story of the attempt on his life is one of the first pathological lies about William, one that he allowed others to regularly retell with embellishment in front of him. The story goes that he was given advanced warning about the coming move against him, and personally rode for 16 hours straight through the night, all the while evading his enemies. The desperate cross-country ride was undertaken to elicit the help of King Henry, who immediately assembled his army and marched against the traitors. This would be the first official battle for William, and MacLynn claims that the Duke's contemporary biographers like to portray it as a miniature Iliad, where a single hero, William, naturally, puts thoughts to flight. The story that William pushed even ends with a magnificent one-on-one -on -one showdown between the young man and the enemy's designated champion. Had William had access to modern film productions, it surely would have been released as a feature film. But as much as William liked to imagine that he had won the day and firmly established his own rule, he owed his victory and kingdom to Henry, who convinced one of William's foes to switch sides in the midst of the conflict. This would be the last direct challenge to his rule, but he still had a long way to go to secure the land which he would need to unite in order to conquer England. MacLynn tells us that three changes came about after 1046, which enabled the Duke to transition from a teen in constant flight to a top-notch warlord. First, William organized a personal bodyguard of elite knights, which formed the nucleus of the Norman army. Secondly, he tied the church to him by becoming the military champion of the Pope. In return for his loyalty, he received an exception to the Christian truce of God, which prohibited his enemies from fighting between Wednesday night and Monday morning as well as all major church holiday. His exemption allowed him to claim a monopoly of violence in Normandy. Third, he used dynastic marriages to bind his enemies to him. Rather than discovering meritocracy, he began to promote entirely based upon loyalty, even demoting those who weren't willing to bend the knee sufficiently. He amassed enough power to secure the right to marry the Duke of Flanders' daughter Matilda. This was the one instance in which he was willing to risk the disapproval of the church, who claimed that the coupling was against canon law, likely either because they were too closely related, or as an attempt for the church to continue to punish and isolate Baldwin of Flanders. The couple had two children before the church lifted its objection. Matilda and William would go on to produce eight more little humans during what appeared to have been a scandal-free marriage. He even considered his queen to be a partner in their ruling endeavors, regularly naming her regent when he was unable to directly tend to the affairs of the realm. During this period, the Baldwins were able to celebrate two important weddings, as Tostig, the brother of Harold Godwinson, married Baldwin's half-sister. Edward the Confessor left Normandy 
and claimed the throne of England in 1042, a time period in which William began to increasingly utilize the sword to solidify his rule over his own lands. In 1050, Edward began playing a dangerous game of manipulating rival kingdoms off of each other in hopes that they would forget about his England. In 1051, his machinations let him down, and the Earl of Godwin, Harold's father, was exiled only to soon return at the head of an army. Facing a crisis, Edward reached out to his old friends in his mother's homeland of Normandy. It was during this moment in 1051 that the Normans claimed that Edward promised to make William his heir. This is the major cause of the events of 1066 and the ascension of William to the throne of England. So let's take a moment to look at the possibilities regarding this supposed promise. First, there is the possibility that some sort of assurance did occur. We know for a fact that Edward liked to promise the throne, granting the title first to his nephew, then to the King of Denmark, before ultimately bestowing the honor on Harold Godwinson. It could have even been that he meant what he told William in 1051, but then later changed his mind before his death in 1066. It also could have been something that the two men joked about while Edward had been living off of Norman generosity, part of a quid pro quo that was assumed by the Normans as payment for the room and board that had accrued over 25 years. It might have even been part of a Machiavellian-like scheme to divide William from his brother-in-law, Baldwin of Flanders, whom Edward feared most at this particular moment. Essentially, what I'm saying is that it is possible that William was promised the throne. If that were the case, his cross-channel invasion would be justifiable. However, it is significantly more likely that William's version of events is built upon a house of lies. Historians tend to call BS on the claim for a couple of reasons. First, they have trouble understanding why Edward would have elevated the status of William if the overall goal was to fight against Baldwin, who was William's ally at this particular moment in history. Edward was a lot of things, but historians have a hard time believing that he would be that stupid. Second, William was never able to provide concrete, conclusive evidence that a firm promise had been made. There were no witnesses, nothing could be produced in writing, and no English advisor could corroborate the Norman story. There are cracks up and down William's version of events. In some versions of the story, William travels to England in order to hear from Edward's own lips his desire to make William the heir. There has never been a scrap or even a fragment of a document that alludes to this meeting between European power players. Sure, England might have been quiet on the meeting, but there are also no Norman references from 1051 or 1052 regarding the supposed clandestine meeting. Furthermore, William was in the midst of fighting his own conflict within northern France in 1051, and it is unlikely that the conqueror would dash off and leave the fate of his kingdom in the hands of others. The supposed Norman proof of the promise reeks of propaganda. William of Portois was in charge of pushing William's cause, writing that there were three clear reasons for Edward making William the prince that was promised. First, that he was kinsman. Secondly, that he was rewarding Normandy for their aid during his exile. And third, that he knew William was the best man for the job. They even write that Godwin, Leofric, Sewald, and Stagan all took an oath to accept William as king if Edward were to perish. Don't forget, at this very moment, Godwin was throwing the realm into chaos after refusing to cross the Thames in order to accept punishment for the decades-old crime of capturing and murdering Edward's brother. It seems somewhat implausible that Godwin would also secretly come with William to the supposed meeting with Edward, 
before then returning back to the field with his army the next week. McLinn goes so far as to assert that the Normans just drew some well-known names out of a hat without even considering what was happening across the channel. Edward may have had some debts to the Normans, but William had been 13 and running for his life the last time he had seen the Confessor. That was just five years into his rule, and two decades of conquering his own people had kept him too busy to ever visit his uncle in England. Furthermore, the Confessor didn't ever express a love for the land of his mother. Remember that Emma had gone on to willingly serve as Canute's wife and queen, providing him with his own son, Hartha Canute, who had succeeded his father as king. While the biographers of William would circle 1051 as the moment of the promise that directly resulted in 1066, the Duke still had work to do at home before he could be ready to launch his invasion across the Channel. McLinn writes that from 1050 onwards, William pursued a policy of centralization and expansion, at once bending the local Norman lords to his will and rolling back the frontiers of Norman power and influence. At this, he was incredibly successful. Decades of intermarriage had formed a nucleus of powerful nobles whose power depended upon William. McLinn paints us a picture of William's court as though it were a mafia-like extended family that was in constant pursuit of profit and loot. From there, he created what amounts to a pyramid scheme, as he made the nobility's wealth and success depend on a never-ending series of foreign wars. Just like any pyramid scheme, the earlier you get in, the better the rewards. Unfortunately, like all pyramid schemes, it was bound to collapse. William was a talented military leader, but he suffered from a gambler's mentality, regularly darting off on a course of action that few would have advised. Fortunately, he was also incredibly lucky throughout his life, as most of the rolls of his dice came up favorably. He used a variety of tactics to keep his enemies at bay. He smashed some cities, but sat for lengthy sieges in other instances. He loved subterfuge and was able to convince a fraction of the city of Alcyon to betray the guards on the walls. He was also willing to use brute force to send an example, parading 32 of the city's leading citizens before the curious eyes of the town's inhabitants. Once a large enough audience had assembled, he ordered their hands and feet cut off. Like Genghis Khan, he believed that terrorizing one city would cause the next few to fall in line without firing an arrow. His efficient consolidation of power raised the suspicions of the King of France that he had perhaps backed the wrong fraction. In 1053, he went so far as to encourage William of Arquettes to renounce his vassalage to William and raise the standard of revolt in Normandy. This new William actually had a better claim to the duchy because of his legitimate birth. Plus, a number of peasants would likely just shrug their shoulders upon finding out that William had replaced William as their overlord. After all, the name was so common in this portion of the world that in a hundred years, another king named Henry would host a tournament for just knights named William. More than 100 attended. The French King Henry backed the upstart William with what he believed to be an invincible coalition, invading Normandy with two separate armies, each of significant size. The king would strike from the west while Geoffrey Martel, the second Martel to claim the nickname of the Hammer, led his forces from the south. Duke William wasted little time blitzkrieging King Henry's forces, before then disappearing into the Norman countryside. His insurgent tactics were Fabian in nature, a term that comes from the Carthage-Rome conflict. Fabian's strategy dictates avoiding large pitched battles 
in favor of smaller, harassing actions in order to break the enemy's will to keep fighting. Victories achieved through attrition rather than envelopment. Modern insurgencies such as those that the U.S. faced in Vietnam, the Second Iraq War, and the 20-year-long Afghan War have all showcased the continuing value of such tactics. After his ambushes secured enough high-level hostages, William was able to sue for peace with the invaders from the south. At this point, King Henry should have backed down and reassessed. Instead, he doubled down, invading alone from the west. The Normans called in every favor, and the entire province rose as one to their duke's feudal call. Now it was William who had two full-sized armies, each stationed at key junctions within the land that he knew intimately. But rather than attack, each wing of his forces continued to remain on the defensive. Rather than rush into a conflict, William cleverly let the French army loot its way through the borderlands in what historians refer to as an orgy of rape and atrocity. The Norman forces chose to make their long-delayed move at the town of Mortimer. After watching their opponents grow complacent and drunk, the Duke's men managed to block all of the community's exits and proceeded to set the town ablaze. The slaughter reached absurd levels, with hand-to-hand -hand combat occurring at each exit point from dawn until 3 p.m. The king's own brother was captured trying to make it out of the massacre of Mortimer, something that William's heralds shouted out across a river to the king's forces, a move that resulted in an urgent French U-turn straight out of Normandy. Historian Edward Freeman sums up the war with the thought that one army was cut to pieces with hardly the loss of a Norman life. The other was hurried out of the land without so much as striking a blow. The resulting peace treaty ensured that the French would no longer interfere with future Norman expansion, something that William needed in order to leave his back exposed while he invaded England. Still, promises weren't always kept in the medieval world. Four years later, Henry tried to unsuccessfully invade once more, but the resulting slaughter was just as one-sided as it had been in 1054. McGlynn teaches us that by 1058, William had achieved virtually complete hegemony in the French-speaking world. Things in France only got easier from that point onward, from 1060 on, he had to deal with the newly crowned eight-year-old Philip on the French throne. William's earlier moves had resulted in a checkmate of the young lord, as Baldwin of Flanders, William's father-in-law, was named as the boy king's ward. As for the other French power players, Anjou was in the midst of a civil war, and Aquitaine was busy dabbling in wars with Spain the time was ripe for William to pursue more aggressive tactics. In 1063, the Normans invaded Maine, the province directly to Normandy's south. Here, he also scorched the earth, burned cities to the ground, and placed his supporters into key positions of power. The purpose of the conquest was to create a buffer zone between Normandy and Anjou, for William was already looking lustfully at England, more evidence that he either didn't have or didn't believe that he was promised the throne. He continued to work towards his master plan, building castles in key locations throughout his land, nominating loyalists to confiscate criminals' lands, and seize potential troublemakers' sons in order to head off any future threat to his power. In other words, he truly operated as though he was the mob. The New Yorker gives us a little bit of insight as to why the Mafia, along with its brutish tactics, were so successful. The magazine points out that psychological distance allows humans to avoid depression 
and rumination which traps us into focusing on the worst parts of the past. Our brains trick themselves into thinking that the past wasn't quite as bad and that the future will be better. In some situations where the circumstances are just right, we create psychological distance in the moment. We lie to ourselves. For the mob, this means glamorizing violence and warfare as long as it doesn't affect our lives. William's kidnapping, extortion, and monopolization of violence was fine for the Normans, as long as it wasn't them that his officers came to arrest. The abstract nature of his hand in all of the events allowed him to thrive to a point where he accrued enough power that no one could stop him once his plans became clear. By the time it came to invade England, all Normans had been transformed into servants of the Duke, only maintaining their positions of privilege at his pleasure. The next few years were about extracting enough funds to secure the mercenaries needed for the next step in his grand plan. Already successful in transitioning from a bastard child to the Mafia Don of Normandy, William rose to Illuminati levels in the run-up to 1066. In 1056, the Holy Roman Emperor left his throne to Henry IV, a boy of just six years of age. The church was in a state of crisis with three popes reigning across the span of five years. In 1058, Pope Benedict X was deposed by the church. Benedict, the son of Guido, had previously been placed on the papal throne by his family in unusual circumstances that didn't quite hold up to legal scrutiny, and he spent the last two decades of his life imprisoned against his will. Today, you will only find the title Antipope next to his name. His replacement was Nicholas II, who immediately showed his hand as the most pro-Norman pope in history. Among the many benefits that came with a loyalist on the throne, the church's objections to the marriage between William and Matilda were permanently erased from the record. McLean explains that William's accomplishments are even more amazing when one realizes that they were completed during an era known for feudal anarchy. He writes that the 11th century was an epic of fragmenting centrifugal power, both cause and consequence of the extreme violence of the era. But William consolidated power within his centralized system of governance, allowing him to pursue a policy that resembles a primitive form of imperialism. Rather than mastering feudalism, which some historians claim, William's successes came through his charisma rather than a legal requirement related to land rights. This gave William distinct advantages, namely that other feudal lords could only force peasants to serve for 40 days. The Duke of Normandy, on the other hand, could keep his army raised for as long as they continued to believe in his cause. His success only strengthened his personality cult, and by 1066, William had never lost a single battle, nor failed to take a single castle that he had besieged. In 1064, William met Harold Godwinson for the first time in person. Again, we have a difference in official stories for how this meeting of power players came to be. Normans tell us that Edward sent Harold in order to officially confirm the 1051 promise that William was to be his heir. Harold's supporters, however, claim that he was shipwrecked and bullied into some vague and non-binding agreement. Ponthieu, Harold's landing point, was known as a magnet for shipwrecks. Today's governments would place a number of warning signs and lighthouses to ensure the ships weren't run aground. 
but due to policies which dated back to Charlemagne's era, no such efforts were made. For shipwrecks were the property of whichever local lord owned the land that the wreck occurred upon. Harold likely ended up in France due to mischievous false lights put out by the court's official wreckers. Harold was deemed a prisoner of value and was immediately imprisoned before being brought to William as a quote-unquote honored guest. Author Natasha Nagin eloquently reminds us that it doesn't matter how beautiful the cage is, as it's still a prison. A military tournament was put on for Harold, likely to showcase how fearsome William's soldiers and cavalry could be. Feasts were held, and Harold may have even promised to marry one of William's daughters once she came of age. William then proclaimed that Harold, as his new best friend, should accompany him as he lay waste to nearby Ravalon, an ally of the Duke of Anjou. Harold participated, showcasing his quick thinking and rescuing some Norman knights who had stumbled upon quicksand on the path to war. In Rivalon, he saw the Norman war machine in action, even witnessing their inner pyromaniac tendencies of shooting flaming arrows over the walls of a town that they were trying to quote-unquote liberate. At the Bayou Monastery, William claims that Harold officially pledged an oath of fealty to him. This adds a new wrinkle to the fact that Edward asked Harold to succeed him. For even if Harold was granted the kingship, he would have been honor-bound to then pass it to his liege lord William. Again, historians call BS on this supposed oath. The primary sources that mentioned the oath all differ on where the agreement took place, what words were agreed upon, and whether it would have been binding, considering that Harold was at the time William's prisoner. McLinn states that every rational assumption works against the theory of an offer of succession by Edward to William in 1064. Norman thinking assumes three things, all of them false. That Harold and Edward were on excellent terms, and that Harold would willingly carry out the king's bidding against his own interests. That Harold had no designs on the crown himself, and that Edward thought he had no such designs. Most unfortunate of all for the theory is the evidence from the Bayou Tapestry, which shows Edward imploring Harold not to go to Normandy. Worse, McLinn suggests that it was far more likely that Harold and Edward may simply have been playing games, enjoying making a fool of William. Harold by this time clearly saw himself as Edward's successor, was remarkably devious, and moreover wished to know William's likely reaction in the event of his own coronation. Thus, if he did purposefully come to Normandy, it was likely more of a fact-finding mission than a crowning. But even that is absurd, as it is more plausible that Harold was in the midst of visiting every European state in order to gauge whether or not they would support him, if William made a claim against him. If this particular assumption is accurate, then Harold happened to crash at the one court he was trying to avoid. There are two keys to successfully lying. First is a lesson that the great George Costanza teaches, namely that it isn't a lie if you believe it. The second key is to always keep your story straight. I'll give two examples for the second lesson, the first of which came after I, as a college kid, idiotically slept in on a testing day. In my defense, I rolled over and looked at the syllabus and thought that it was a movie day that I was skipping. Not in my defense, I probably should have looked the night before and started studying for said test. Either way, it was 25% of my grade, which was worth speaking to the professor about. I barely managed to get him to allow me to retake it, 
by telling him the truth about my decision to skip what I thought was a movie day. My penchant for arguments has always been good. But I was subjected to a lecture from my instructor, who told me what is most likely an urban legend about four students who claimed that they missed the test because of a flat tire. In the story that he told me, he separated out the four students into four different rooms and provided them with a test that asked just one question. Which tire was the one that went flat? The second story is more current, and we don't know yet whether anything will come about because of it. But former U.S. President Donald Trump had classified documents seized via the FBI after the Department of Justice went through the legal process to obtain a warrant. The Trump PR team seemed to workshop their story publicly, which is never the best way to establish one's story. First, they told us that there were no documents. Next, they explained that if there were documents, then they were there legally because the president had declassified them, to which all he would have to do is provide the paperwork that is required to do so. Third, however, the former president's team told us that the FBI had planted the documents. Now this is where you start to see the story unravel, for why would the FBI plant unclassified documents if they were framing him? Or, even more implausible, how did Trump know to declassify the exact documents that the government was going to use to get him? But this wasn't the end of the Trump team's defense, for they then asked for the documents back, with Donald publicly telling his lawyers to file a motion to get his documents back. Kinda odd to ask for something back that had been planted if they weren't yours to begin with. The lie further unraveled when letters were revealed informing his team that he had an obligation to hand them back, and that he had refused. Again, we don't know if anything is going to come of this. With his track record of avoiding legal culpability, the likely is that nothing will. But it provides a nice example about how failure to get one story straight makes your argument look ridiculous quite quickly. And that is the trouble that pathological liars find themselves in. For they tell so many lies that are so easily exposed. Let's apply this to William's claim to the English throne. First, there was the supposed clandestine meeting and promise in 1051. Even if such a meeting happened, William should have known that something was up when Edward later publicly named Edward the Aetheling as his heir. Keep in mind that the Aetheling was poisoned upon reaching the shores of England, a favored weapon of William. Now William's camp is claiming that Harold was sent to promise the crown. But why were there no contracts, charters, celebrations, exchange of hostages, gifts of castles, land, titles, in preparation for the transition? Why wouldn't William travel to the English court in order to celebrate in person with the confessor? Getting desperate, the Normans even pushed a story about Harold swearing that William was the heir while his hand was placed upon a chest full of holy relics, making it spiritually binding. Of course, the chest had been hidden beneath a tablecloth so as to trick Harold into swearing. But if we are to believe that Harold came with the express purpose of making William the heir, why then did they need to entrap him to make said promise? Even more exacerbating is the fact that Harold wasn't the king, and therefore any promise extracted from him was categorically worthless. Edward himself didn't even have the power to name the next king, as Canute had put in place a Witten, or council, that met to officially accept the nomination of the next king. Edward the Confessor passed away without an heir on January 5th, 1066. Harold was beside the deathbed of the king, 
and granted the title of heir from the king's own lips. William heard about Edward's death and choice of heir while he was out hunting. Legend claims that he sank into immediate depression and sat in silence for hours. After coming to, he sent an ambassador to London to put forth his legal argument that the crown belonged on his brow. He also sent an ambassador to Rome, hoping that his favored pope could deliver to him the realm. Although Nicholas was no longer in charge, and the new pope Alexander held the belief that the northern kingdoms of Europe were far too remote for the Vatican to control from Rome. Still, William received an official blessing from the Pope that authorized his invasion. The Vatican's endorsement of his cause allowed the Normans to proclaim to all that they were the good guys, crusaders righting a wrong. It also made it difficult for any Christian nation to come to the aid of Harold Godwinson, for such action would explicitly go against the church's will. Surprisingly, William had to browbeat his lords, who expressed concern at the difficulty of invading across the channel. The Normans didn't even have a navy, nor the ships that were necessary for the crossing at this point in history. Over the past decade, they had purely focused on building up their cavalry at the expense of their navy, an oddity for what had been a Viking people. Britain, on the other hand, had done the opposite, neglecting their horses in favor of ships. Even after building up their navy, they would have to manage the crossings undetected by an enemy which knew they were coming. It would take him six months to construct, plan, and begin the invasion of England. Next episode, we'll go through the two major battles that decided the fate of England and thus the fate of the world. And that is no lie nor exaggeration. I hope you enjoyed today's episode. If you want to interact with the show, you can email us at resourcesbylowry at gmail.com. If you would like to financially support the show, please look in the show description for more information. As always, thank you for listening, rating the show, and spreading the word.